Amy Medling. I'm a certified health coach, and I'm the founder of PCOSDiva.com, and I'm here today with another PCOS Diva podcast. And I wanted to just start by saying that one of the my main goals for uh, producing these podcasts was to really introduce women with PCOS to men and women who are really out on the front lines, uh, dedicating their uh, their careers and their time to advancing the research for women with PCOS. And today, I'm really thrilled to be speaking with Dr. Dan Demesic. And Dr. Demesic is a clinician scientist. He is a reproductive endocrinologist and professor and division chief of reproductive endocrinology and infertility in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at UCLA. He's not only a uh, practicing physician, but he is one of those um, frontline researchers for PCOS. So, Dr. Demesic, I'm so happy to have you here on our call today. Welcome. Oh, a pleasure to be here, Amy. Thank you for the invitation. So, I wanted to just ask, how does um, a practicing OBGYN, reproductive endocrinologist, get involved with PCOS research, you know, how, what, what sort of made you sort of take that turn and that path in your, your career? Well, that's an interesting question. When I trained several years ago, I was fortunate enough to be trained by the premier reproductive endocrinologist in the country who uh, had a very strong focus on integrating reproductive abnormalities with metabolic abnormalities. And when Dr. Robert Jaffe trained me years ago, he felt very strongly that we needed to know all of the hormone interactions together as a unit to understand the elements of disease. So later, when I uh, became uh, affiliated with the universities, I always kept that message and became interested in polycystic ovary syndrome because it's a very unique syndrome that is the combination of reproductive hormone issues that are deeply integrated with metabolic hormone issues that lend itself to the full spectrum of the of the syndrome and in order to provide the best health care for these people then you have to approach it with that information that there are reproductive and metabolic problems that integrate themselves and and that's why I was attracted to it because it was this interesting combination of reproduction and metabolism mm. together. Mm. And I think a lot of um, women have experienced, you know, doctors addressing that fertility side or piece of the puzzle, but the the metabolism um, and that metabolic sort of syndrome and the insulin issue um, is, you know, not often addressed as, um, you know as quickly as the fertility issue. So can maybe you can explain a little bit more about that metabolic component for women with PCOS. Well, the, the integration of the metabolism and the reproduction, I think, is the most obvious, uh, to me at least, in young people trying to conceive. And traditionally, when an infertility specialist sees an individual with polycystic ovary syndrome, like many other people who do not ovulate regularly, the focus is to induce ovulation and have that woman conceive. But we now know that there's abnormalities that go beyond just 
anovulation or the inability to ovulate. There's metabolic issues that affect uh, the egg uh, in particular, uh, also the lining of the uterus uh, under other circumstances. So if you look at people with polycystic ovary syndrome, particularly in the presence of increased body weight, then the combination of PCOS and increased body weight actually can increase their chance of miscarriage. It can decrease their chance of conception, even if the woman ovulates. Uh, there's an increased risk of maternal problems in pregnancy, including gestational diabetes. And now there's some aspects that it might actually affect the long-term health care of their offspring unless you take the time preconceptually to optimize their metabolic um, uh, disorders so that you can avert many of these issues that I just mentioned. And I think when we look at it from the perspective of reproduction, then I think going back to this message of understanding reproduction and metabolism is absolutely crucial because you can optimize the health, the health not only of the uh, of the pregnancy, but also the offspring after birth. Um, the other aspect that's important is beyond reproductive life, uh, then one gets into a situation where uh, women with PCOS, particularly in the presence of increased body weight, have increased risk, at least we believe, uh, of some cardiovascular diseases uh, after their re reproductive life. That's a whole other area of research investigation, by the way. But I think you see from from adolescence to reproduction to post-reproductive years, you see, again, this balance between reproduction and metabolism that needs to be optimized uh, for the long-term health, not only of the patient, but also of their offspring. And I think the good news is that with lifestyle modifications, um, you know, a lot of those risk factors, I think, can be averted uh, you know, with the right diet and lifestyle. Is, are you seeing that with your patients? We see that certainly if people have the time to do lifestyle modification because it, it takes a while for people to really, um, again, if they're overweight, obviously you would not do that if somebody was in an, op an optimal uh, weight or body mass index. Uh, but if people are overweight, and this pertains to not only PCOS women, but any individual who's overweight, the woman trying to conceive has to be young enough to have that time to lose the body weight and get into an optimal situation prior to conception. One of the issues and challenges we see in our practice is that the average age of a woman trying to conceive is about 36 and that's typical for reproductive endocrinologists that are practicing at universities where people uh, tend to come in with more complicated issues. Uh, under those circumstances, if somebody happens to be overweight at that age, now we try to balance the time required for weight loss versus the fact that age in and of itself is an adverse um, aspect of reproduction. So sometimes merely telling somebody to lose weight isn't quite appropriate because you have to balance that with the age of the patient as well. Right. right. 
So I wanted to touch a little bit on, upon the research that you're currently doing. I know that you have a um, National Institute of Health-sponsored um, study, and you're looking at androgen excess and body fat in women with PCOS. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that's that's correct. Uh, we're very very uh, honored to be. Uh, running a clinical trial here at UCLA that focuses on polycystic ovary syndrome. Um, there are several uh, what we call phenotypes or characteristics of polycystic ovary syndrome ranging from very mild uh, findings to severe findings. And the classic form of polycystic ovary syndrome is the combination of a woman having menstrual irregularity because she's not ovulating in the presence of androgen excess, and that can either be an elevation of male hormones in the blood, or in many individuals, uh, hirsutism, or the presence of coarse terminal hair uh, on the body in the distribution of a male, which is usually along the central part of the body, the lip, uh, the chest, the, the abdomen, um, the uh, proximal or near part of the legs and, and the arms. And what we've wanted to do is to explore polycystic ovary syndrome in lean individuals because the literature is complicated by PCOS in the presence of either being overweight or obese. And that becomes a challenge because you need to unweave the interaction between PCOS per se and the fact that people across the, the country and the world are often over, overweight anyway, and that's now a confounding factor. Mm. So, so what we're doing is we're looking at women with PCOS that have menstrual irregularity and androgen excess as the cardinal feature of PCOS, who are lean with a body mass index between 19 and 25 kilograms per meter squared, so that's a calculation we do. And we're looking at three critical aspects of their health. Number one, reproduction. Number two, sugar metabolism, because these people are at risk for diabetes when they age. And number three, lipid metabolism, because we think with age, these people might also be at risk for cardiovascular disease. And we're looking at a uh, anti-androgen medication uh, that we can give these, these PCOS uh, patients uh, to see if we can reverse those three endpoints uh, early in their life so we can prevent uh, both reproductive as well as metabolic issues uh, in the future. So can you share with us the, the medication that you're testing? Or? So the medicine that we're looking at is a medicine that's been around uh, quite a while. It's called flutamide, which is an anti-androgen. Uh, and it's predominantly been used in men for other indications, but there's been an interest in using it because it's a, it's one of the more pure anti-androgens, uh, and individuals like myself, uh, as well as some uh, colleagues of ours uh, in in Spain and other places, are trying to use these very low doses to see if you can't block that androgen effect which uh, is coming from the overproduction of the male hormone testosterone, almost always from the ovaries themselves. And so um, the study is a six-month study 
where people are randomized to either a placebo control, we're blinded of course, versus flutamide, and then we we study their uh, their sugar metabolism, their lipid metabolism, and their ovarian function before and after the six-month trial of the medication. So um, are you still currently enrolling for that study? We're, yeah, we're currently enrolling for this study. We, it's a five-year study, uh, so we're funded for five years, and we're just finishing our second year now. We're beginning our third year uh, this this April. So we would uh, be bringing in uh, either normal women as controls, because obviously we have control people as well, uh, who are normal individuals who have regular menstrual cycles and are otherwise in good health as a comparison. And we are uh, actively recruiting PCOS patients uh, in this, this study as well. So that would be a, a wonderful thing. If, if people were interested, we could uh, certainly give them as much information as they wish. Great. Well, I will post a link to um, the study info underneath the, the podcast recording for anyone that's interested. Um, and I also wanted to ask you a little bit more about fat and PCOS. I know that's been kind of one of your, you know, areas of focus. Um, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how you um, see women with PCOS, um, I guess, maybe storing their fat differently than um women without PCOS, and how does that play a role in kind of the whole PCOS um, syndrome? Well, one of the reasons why I started focusing on fat metabolism is because I've heard so many stories, and I'm sure other physicians have too, about people coming in with PCOS and saying they couldn't lose weight no matter what their best efforts efforts were. Right. And it's a very, very difficult situation, and oftentimes when we have our patients be seen by the nutritionists and some of the other uh, divisions here at UCLA where they uh, work with us to look at lifestyle modification, including diet and exercise, uh, we realize that these people are doing an excellent job, and yet their weight reduction is not occurring. And so it made me wonder, well, well why not? And if one could look at PCOS in the absence of any other problems, including being overweight to begin with, then that was my original idea to say, look at PCOS in its purest form in the lean individual and and gain insight into what's going on at that time rather than later on when there are other diseases involved, including diabetes, and then it becomes impossible to really know what the primary issues are. The issues with body weight uh, kind of fall into various categories. Everybody knows uh, that if you're overweight, there are risk factors, and that's been known for, for many, many years. Then several years ago, the idea of body fat distribution became important as an independent variable, meaning that if you control for the body mass index of a person or their body weight, the way people stored fat on their abdomen versus their hips became an independent variable for cardiovascular disease. And this raised the issue of the apple and the pear that people often refer to, the apple being essentially men uh, and women with PCOS who put fat around their tummy 
uh, versus the pear uh, distribution of fat, where fat is placed on the hips, uh, and that's characteristic more of normal women. And the reason why women store fat on their hips, or what we call the gluteal femoral flank, is because that's the fat storage that's used in reproduction later in life during lactation, during childbirth, etc. <laughs> so the second issue that became an important one metabolically was body fat distribution. Then a third variable was introduced, and that's what we're studying now. And that's the concept of lipotoxicity. Lipotoxicity basically says that fat is normally stored in all people under the skin, our subcutaneous region. And in all individuals, they have a certain set point of how much fat they can store in their normal areas. Once that set point is exceeded, then, in, then any excess fat or calorie that comes into the body, the fat is deposited elsewhere in the body, which is considered ectopic or an abnormal location. If it's deposited in the muscle, it causes insulin resistance. If it's deposited in the liver, it causes abnormalities of cholesterol and triglycerides. And if it's deposited in the blood vessels, it can be associated with cardiovascular disease. So the idea that if everyone has a set point for normal fat storage, that would explain things we never could understand before. For example, hmm. why are some people who are very, very heavy still very, very healthy? Well, if they store the majority of their fat properly, they can be very health, health, um, heavy, but the fat is put in the right place and therefore they're functionally normal people. It would also explain why some individuals who are born with rare diseases where they have no fat, and there are diseases called lipodystrophies where fat storage is virtually absent, all of those people have severe um, metabolic diseases because they have virtually no ability to store fat whatsoever. So I became interested now in studying that phenomenon, lipotoxicity, in lean women with PCOS with the idea that maybe they can store fat properly, maybe they can't, but that might be totally separate from BMI per se. And that's really mm. one of the reasons we're looking into this. The other reason why it's important to study lean PCOS women is a study that one of my colleagues, Dave Abbott, uh, recently published at the University of Wisconsin, where individuals who had PCOS by the criteria I mentioned who were not overweight, were studied in metabolic chambers to look at how they burned off uh, their sugar versus their amino acids or protein versus their fat. And the interesting observation that Dr. Abbott found with his colleagues, Dr. Wiggum and others, was that normally women, uh, as they sleep, uh, will burn off their sugar first as a source of energy and then throughout the evening, because they're not eating and fasting, their next metabolic uh, energy source to be utilized is, is lipid or fat. So in the morning, when people wake up after an overnight fast, normal women have tapped into their lipid metabolism as a source of energy. In women with polycystic ovary syndrome, they start the evening burning off sugar, as one would normally expect, 
But then throughout the evening as they're fasting, rather than tapping into lipid metabolism, they preferentially begin burning protein and sparing fat. Oh, that's fascinating. This brings up an interesting concept, and that is maybe PCOS women have problems losing weight eventually because they have abnormal metabolic cues that tend to put their body towards sparing fat. Mm-hmm. And if they're sparing fat, then they may not be able to burn off the uh, lipid metabolism as one would anticipate. And if that occurs early in their life when they're young, then over the course of decades, that may be the signal that's kind of having them gain weight over time despite their best efforts. And this brings up a very, very complicated area of medicine again, looking at this interaction between metabolism and reproduction. Because if that lipid metabolism does accumulate in an abnormal area, uh, over and above lipid metabolism in the skeletal muscle and the liver, if it's deposited in the ovary uh, in proximity to the egg, we know that that's harmful to the egg. And so we as reproductive endocrinologists have to make sure we understand the implications of the reproductive hormones and the metabolic hormones, going back to the initial concept uh, I brought up earlier about understanding how we can optimize the egg for purposes of fertilization and eventually the delivery of a healthy live birth. So this is also interesting. Um, I was thinking about the... National Institute of Health, they had a PCOS workshop back in, I think it was 2012, and I remember one of the things that I sort of took away from listening to the talks is that there was um, a a lot of talk about fatty liver and PCOS. So are you finding that one of those lipid um, kind of metabolism dysfunctions with women with PCOS is that it's like the it's causing that fatty liver disease. Well, fatty liver um, yeah, or NASH, uh, which is what we for, refer to when it's not from alcoholism, is from the abnormal deposition of lipid in excess in in the liver tissue itself. And this goes back to <clears throat> this interesting concept in in the body in that. Lipid is often placed in various target tissues for very specific reasons, uh, which are good, uh, because lipid is important for um, uh, liver metabolism. It's important for hormone production by the ovary. So lipid per se in a sufficient amount is not a bad thing. But when it overwhelms the system, uh, and this goes back to some issues of the fat that's inside the abdomen or the visceral fat, when there's a large amount of fat in the visceral abdomen or within the intestine area, the omentum is the the, uh, organ that stores most of the lipid inside the abdomen, the blood supply from the omentum goes directly to the liver. So if there's a large amount of fat in the omentum, there's a large delivery of free fatty acids and lipid to the liver, and the liver now uh, stores that lipid because it's the first tissue to see the the fat coming from the omentum. 
And then <clears throat> as that lipid accumulates, a number of things happen. Uh, first of all, you can damage the liver, and we know that by looking at liver function studies as a sign of damage. The other thing that happens is the liver is important for metabolizing insulin. And if it cannot degrade insulin properly, then the liver becomes resistant to insulin, like many other target tissues, and you set up this self-fulfilling um, uh, prophecy where more lipid delivered, delivered to the liver from the omentum harms the liver, and that worsens the whole process uh, over and over again. So we are seeing a, a large number of people coming in uh, with PCOS who happen who are obese, so that's another this other confounding factor uh, in addition to PCOS, and that the interaction of the obesity with the PCOS, the harm from that is greater than the sum of the parts. And so you have these uh, individuals with elevated liver function studies or NASH syndrome. Uh, they tend to be diabetic, uh, and now there's one kind of disorder upon another uh, that is perpetuating all of the disease syndromes in block. So yes, we do see that, and that's uh, that's a very critical aspect of of healthcare uh, in in today's environment. So with all of this information um, that you're in uncovering and discovering, you know, where do you see PCOS care going? Can you can you leave us with a, a message of hope uh, for? for women um, who are dealing with obesity and, and a lot of these issues that you've talked about. Um, you know, leave us with a with a hopeful um, message. Well, there's, there's several. Um, and I think you can divide it into people who already uh, have some of these problems and, and the other is, I think, the next generation. Uh, people who are adolescent or maybe uh, haven't even been born yet because there's many areas that are all very exciting uh, and very rewarding, and I think you'll see this in the, in the future. Uh, already, we are seeing that there are several new products coming to the market that have been introduced in the last year or two <clears throat> that are really focusing on the medical aspects of handling people who have metabolic problems in the presence or absence of polycystic ovary syndrome, but for the sake of our discussion, who have both now. Up until recently, the lifestyle modification has been um, moderately successful, but I think most clinicians realize that uh, it's hard for people to lose weight and keep that weight off. Any diet uh, tends to wane with time because it's hard for people to stay on diet for a long period of time for a whole host of reasons. So several new medications have come to the market. Many of them focus on what we call satiety or appetite because we know that appetite is really the underlying driver of what's handling a lot of the aspects of food ingestion. And some of these new products have been associated with... with um, outstanding weight loss over six months to a year. So I think you're going to see already the emergence of several new products that people, uh, physicians are layering onto lifestyle modification. We'd certainly never abandon lifestyle modification, but adding to it 
what we call an adjuvant medications, and those medicines uh, uh, are on the market currently. So I think that's number one. I think many institutions, including UCLA, realize we have to take an integrated approach towards healthcare. We can't just go to one doctor who does one thing and then go to this doctor to do another thing. And if you don't have those doctors integrating what they're doing, the patient goes from one doctor to another and never kind of gets a whole sense of what's going on with their body. And that's that's really something that has to change with PCOS. There has to be integrated health care so that all of these metabolic and reproductive issues are dealt with together in an in a integrated manner. Many institutions now have centers that do that, and we do too. And so I think you're seeing a multidisciplinary approach to the healthcare of PCOS, which I think is absolutely crucial. I think the third thing that's really um, exciting is that we know that there are a genetic underpinning to PCOS that's partially responsible for PCOS, what we refer to as a susceptibility gene, if you will, and people are looking at that now. And there's there's uh, very exciting data as to whether that gene or clusters of genes will be uh, uh, clarified in the near future. And I think on top of a genetic understanding of PCOS, there's what we call an epigenetic uh, aspect of PCOS. That's something we've studied ourselves, looking at the action of those genes, which we know is controlled by the environment. And this brings us into this whole developmental programming model of disease, which essentially says that during fetal development, there are cues that are occurring during fetal life that are setting the long-term health of that fetus after birth. And those aspects and cues that are occurring during fetal development are beginning to be understood in PCOS. And this goes back, Amy, to the point I mentioned before, so that when a woman with PCOS now conceives, it's not just a matter of ovulating and getting pregnant. It's a matter of a preconceptual assessment of their metabolic health so that when they do conceive, they are prepared to have the best pregnancy outcome for themselves to lower the risk of diabetes and also the best intrauterine environment for the fetus so after birth the health of the offspring into the next generation is maintained. And I think all of those areas, there's specific people in the field that are looking at each one of those areas, and they're all doing very exciting work that is beginning to be integrated into the health care of the, the patient and her family now. It's no longer theory. It's, it's, it's medical fact, and it's affecting our clinical practices, and I think that's very exciting. Oh, it, it really is exciting. I know so many of us are concerned about our offspring and whether our daughters um, will also have PCOS. And it's just wonderful that even there there are men and women like you. And, and thank you on behalf of women with PCOS for, for the work that you do um, and for taking the time today to talk to us. Well, it's my pleasure, Amy, and uh, again, there's many people across the country, uh, actually throughout the world, uh, that are profoundly dedicated to this issue, and all of us are trying to provide the best health care in a multidisciplinary way for PCOS patients through what we call evidence-based research. Let's do the research to understand how we can bring it from the bench to the bedside 
in a logical way for members uh, of our community that have PCOS and their families as well. It's just it's just so great to hear and to be able to highlight um, your work. And uh, I just want also I will post a link to the UCLA um, PCOS Center so that women in your um, in the, that area can find that kind of integrative approach to PCOS care. Well, thank you so much. And if anyone is interested in our study, we're happy to reach out to them and give them the specifics on the study and the criteria. They're, they're quite stringent. But um, the information we're getting from it uh, is exciting, and I think it will have a major bearing on uh, where things will go in the future. Wonderful. Just curious, when, when um, will that study be closed, and do you think you'll have your research, like in, in 2000? We're, uh, the way we have the the way the uh, project has been set up, we are looking for 12 normal control people. We have about nine already, somewhere in that area. So that that's been easy to recruit. Women um, with PCOS, we're looking for a total of 36 over five years. Um, they need to be. Uh, young people between the age, I believe it's 19 and 35, um, their BMI between um, 19 and 25, so they have to be lean. We've actually controlled for ethnicity because race, which we haven't talked about, is an important criteria that affects metabolism. So for this particular study, we're recruiting non-Hispanic Caucasian individuals and they have to be willing to uh, use a medication for six months, which means they can't conceive during that time because we're doing the study. So they're very, very stringent. Um, we have several PCOS patients that are through, but we're always looking for more individuals. This May, uh, you mentioned the NIH conference uh, back in 2012. This May, uh, there's another NIH conference. We will presenting, we'll be presenting our original data now that's coming out of this um, this clinical trial because after about two years you have enough patients to look at sort of the baseline information, see where it's going. So we're very excited about that because we're looking at what controls insulin sensitivity in women who are lean and perfectly healthy, PCOS and normal, and we're understanding those cues right now. I don't, I don't want to Right. give away my thunder right now, but uh, <laughs> but we're on that one. So we're presenting that, I think, May 18th at NIH. And, oh, exciting. Um, the other thing is individuals who get involved in our project, um, all of their uh, reproductive studies, all of their metabolic studies uh, are theirs for their own personal use. So when we're done with the study, they get a big uh, packet of all of their data um, that outlines virtually all of the all of the studies and, and what they mean. So it helps the patients too. Great. So yeah, if anyone listening is interested, please uh reach out to Dr. Domestic. And I think that's the all the time we have today. So thank you again for um talking to us and thanks to everyone for listening and until next time. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you.